0: This is Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. In the fall of 2021, I finally got to leave my house and speak to a real live audience at the Pebble Beach Authors and Ideas Festival in Monterey, California. After more than a year of the pandemic, everyone was a little rusty with in-person interactions, except for one presenter, Dr. Mark Moffat. Mark's presentation, his animated style, and Fun-Demeanor captured the crowd that weekend in a way that no one else could. His description of the Southern California ant wars captivated the crowd and I and put everyone who had been trapped in their house for more than a year completely at ease. Informally known as Dr. Bugs, Mark Moffat is a biologist, writer, and globetrotter who has examined species, life, and death from the forest floor to the canopies. His research has brought him all over the world, from Sri Lanka to Costa Rica to Easter Island. A high school dropout and self-proclaimed shy kid, Mark ended up with his PhD from Harvard and has published several books, including a fascinating one called Human Swarm, which argues that human societies are simply a mirror of insect ones. Mark, Dr. Bugs, joined me to discuss his winding career path and how we aren't so different from ants after all. You are described in different places as different things. And so I know uh, in your book, categories, taxonomies, you know, uh, using frameworks, you're described as a tropical biologist and other spots an ecologist. How would you describe yourself?
1: Well I you know I actually uh, study things across different parts of biology that's the fun of my particular niche in life I'm outside of normal academia I don't have to have a professorial narrow perspective so I tend to drift between ecology which is the functioning of ecosystems and animal behavior which is the organization of In my case, the interest is in societies. I believe in reinventing oneself every five years or so. uh, This whole keeping to one narrow path through life thing doesn't interest me. So I I basically shift gears occasionally. And I have been a photographer with National Geographic. And I've written and I've done uh, museum exhibits. And I've appeared on Colbert, the old version of Colbert and the Conan and so forth. So I try various things at the moment i'm
0: focusing on animal behavior though so mark you reminded me of something that i think is a wise tale and i want to ask you now that i have you on so i had heard and this is probably misinformation but i had heard that in the human body all cells in the human body essentially die off or change in roughly seven years i don't know if this is correct and that your body is regenerating yourself and then i don't know if that's true you can tell me if that's true or not and then because of that, that's what changes your preferences, in part, is that you're a new you all the time. You're constantly evolving, which I thought was a wise tale. But I wonder what you thought now that now that you just mentioned that.
1: Well, I think that's a good parable. I'm not quite sure it's true. I think some neurons last quite a while. Those are the ones that probably stuck you into continuing to think about your high school sweetheart when you should have moved on or something like that. Basically, the interesting thing is our bodies do have all these turnover cells of cells and tissues over great periods of time. But we retain an identity as an individual through that time. At least we have a memory of the continuity. And this identity as an individual is really important and uh, also carries over to the way we think about societies as identities, as if they were individuals, as if we were part of a grander thing. And this unity of a sense of identity is really important in uh sustaining groups over the long term whether it's you and or me as individuals or groups
0: of individuals so mark you are a great presenter that's why you're on colbert that's why you're on conan o'brien i saw you on stage the, the first time i met you you were on stage and you kind of had the. The crowd was lit up. You know that's a, a special gift. How did you become a good presenter? Aside, but we'll get to the biologist part. But I want to know how did you become such a good presenter of your work?
1: Well, I grew up a I grew up a loner. I know you had like tons of friends in high school I can tell just <laughs> by looking at that smile of yours but you know I was a loner out in the backyard you know probably would have turned into some suspicious person living off in a shack somewhere if a career had taken me in a slightly different direction and I'm a high school dropout I wasn't really focused on academics but I I loved biology so I kept pursuing biology and I met various professors and I got into a small college called Beloit College. And from there, wrote a professor named E.O. Wilson at Harvard, because I had gotten his book, The Insect Societies. I had had it since junior high school. So I wrote this fellow at a place called Harvard. And I was fairly ignorant about how improbable it was to receive a response from someone at Harvard, but he wrote me back. And so I just started becoming a biologist out of uh, this void. And as I did it, I learned to present myself mostly because as part of my thesis, I decided I wanted to disappear. That was my loner side coming to the fore. And so I got money and Ed's permission to travel to Asia and work on my own looking for weird ants, all kinds of really cool species of ants. Ed Wilson is well known as an ant biologist. And I had to document them. Otherwise, people would just think I was sitting around smoking something with gurus in India. So I figured out how to take photographs before I left. And I turned out to be quite good at it. That's a whole story in itself. But, you know, for no particular reason, I turned out to be good at it. You know, to me, it was just you hold the camera, you see something happening in it, and you press a button whenever it's interesting. And I did that with ants. And so I became a a National Geographic photographer out of nowhere as I showed up with my ant photographs. And those photographs allowed me to present things and forget that I was shy because I could be in the dark and there'd be ant photographs. And gradually I became more and more focused on trying to overcome those fears that I had as a kid. And so I've even tried stand-up comedy and things like that now. So just trying to work against one's own deficits, I think, is an important thing sometimes. In my case, it seems to work. I still like to be uh, off in the rainforest
0: by myself a lot of the time. So you essentially work towards it, but inadvertently, it sounds like at the same point, meaning you had kind of a, a challenge that you had to rise to each time, but now it seems like you're, I mean, you're highly prolific, you're in front of audiences all the time you're definitely the showcase, you know, of the day, at least the day I saw you, you were definitely the one that grabbed the audience and could kind of sweep in.
1: You know, I actually, I practiced when I was in India. And in fact, when I was over there, I realized I could avoid my committee for my PhD and continue doing work. So I continued traveling for two and a half years continuously through like 19 countries, finding new ant species and all kinds of stories about them avoiding, you know, all the protocols and work that I would have had to do if I had gone back to the grad school. And so I would practice, for example, uh, you'd be in some jungle location in the Philippines or, you know, Indonesia or someplace, and you'd be waiting for a bus, and there'd be a whole bunch of people just staring at you because you were a space alien. And so I would practice by just giving them lectures. I would say, Ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about the ant. And they'd all watch me and be quite fascinated by this strange person speaking in English, of course, carrying on and just, uh, you know, I'd have a good time and they'd have a good time. And I kind of learned just to enjoy the experience of connecting with people, in this case, as a sort of almost comedic style,
0: since they didn't particularly grasp what I was talking about, though that would show them different ants and so forth. Why ants as opposed to other animals? I know you've studied tons of different animal species and, and your book, you know, articulates that right from the start. The The book is The Human Swarm. So you, you articulate that, but you always kind of descend back towards the answer. It seems like that's kind of the thing that you focused on the most in your career. Why did you pick those? And, and why do you continue to study them?
1: Well, I can give you a short story. And that is, a, you know, one of my Things I do with National Geographic, I've been working as a researcher for the last few years, but I've had about 30 National Geographic stories over time. And one of my early stories was on poison dart frogs, which are gorgeous things, right? And I'm out there with a leading poison dart frog expert. He was a single guy. And occasionally, some cute ladies would walk up and say, what are you doing what you were doing? And, it, and twice this happened while he was injecting the frogs with formalin, killing them for museum specimens. And something you have to do as a scientist is to you know have right. specimens to determine what you were studying later. But this was not the most successful way for him to be introduced to a lady. And I'm just saying this because, you know, one thing that, a reason to study ants is you don't feel guilty about killing one at the end of the day for research purposes. They've been up your legs biting away and, you know, you can swat a few off and put them in a vial and no big deal and no one particularly cares. And the other reason to study ants is that they're fascinating in a way that we knew when we were infants. We knew this when we were in diapers at the age of three months down in the dirt watching them. Every human recognizes this. And what makes them fascinating is that they're doing things we can relate to. They're building roadways and infrastructure. They're working together to get food back to the nest, to coordinate against defense, against enemies. Are The kind of activities you don't see in many other animals and the scale of those activities are very similar to humans. And in fact, my argument is that modern humans are much more like certain ants than we are like chimpanzees. So to study how groups organize, the basic principles of how a group survives over time, particularly if it's a large group, and ants can have societies of, in some case, millions, just like we can have societies of millions, and other creatures don't do that. Once you have these, that scale of a society, you have to have all kinds of ways of getting resources around, exchanging information, all kinds of things that happen just to keep the society running. And those parallels are real ones. The solutions may not be the same. Their brains aren't very big, you know, but still they have to have solutions that work. So it's actually quite fascinating to watch ants.
0: So let's stick with that in terms of ants versus, you know, primates, the way you were talking about in terms of essentially the colonies. And this is important to me for ant colony optimization, the way it's been used in computer science. It's It's driven a lot of the way people do programming. How is it that, Ants vis-a-vis other animal species were oftentimes compared to, you know, primate species. How is it different or more similar to us? You know, what, what isn't apparent about ants that, you know, the common person wouldn't normally fall into or understand?
1: Uh, well, the basic issues, again, are ones of scale, because one of the things I determined in the last few years by looking across different species is in most animals, societies, depend on every member of the society knowing every other member as an individual. You have to actually know and recognize every individual. That's true across a lot of different animals, right up to the chimpanzee. And there's only so many individuals you can keep track of, which is probably one essential reason why in all these species, societies are small. There's a a few dozen, usually. Chimpanzees reach a maximum of about 200 in one of their communities ants break that record. They go, as I said, to societies of millions. And once you do that, you end up with problems that you only see in parallel with humans. So no chimpanzee worries about public health issues. If you've ever been around chimpanzees, uh, they can throw things at you that, you know, would be um, illegal in our species. But ants have in some cases with their larger colonies, whole sanitation squads to deal with public health, to get rid of disease, to manage these kinds of things. They have, in many cases, traffic rules, just because there are so many of them carrying back food along these highways,
0: that they have to manage that traffic just as we do. How do they figure that out? Like the traffic management, these sorts of things? Because as you said, obviously, they have very small brains compared to other animals, you know, in the kingdom. How are they figuring out how to do these more complex tasks? I, I just can't get my head around how they figure out how to do this stuff.
1: Well, figuring out maybe the wrong term. I mean, it's built into their little minds in a way that we wouldn't have for humans, whether it's genetically determined or determined by thought and buildup of ideas over generations, as it happens in our species Is almost irrelevant to the fact that uh, the result has to be a healthy society. So, how do ants deal with bad
0: ants in their societies?
1: (laughs) Well, ants are a little, for the most part, well, better behaved than humans can be. We can have more conflict in our societies. And one reason that's often true is that ant societies are very genetically similar there's a a kinship there's a single queen and everyone's the daughter it's a big female organization and they work together for basically the survival and benefit of the queen to generate more daughters but ants can also have societies where there's a lot of genetic diversity as well. But humans have societies where individuals can come from and modern societies around the world be completely distinct in terms of their her- heritage and backgrounds. And we still manage to keep together. But this tends to
0: lead to more conflict, for sure. I think one of the times we talked, you spoke about essentially competing um, tribes to a degree or ant colonies colliding with each other, different species of ants, if I had it correctly, and that there are certain rift lines Uh, in the U.S. that we probably wouldn't be aware of where one species of ants essentially collides with another. How did you figure that out? How do you know, how do the ants know that they're not part of the same tribe? Like, what are those boundary lines in in terms of the conflict?
1: You got it almost right there, but these are actually the same species. Basically, we talked earlier about the human body and those cells, and the cells of our human body are all genetically the same and there's this unity of identity. Everybody belongs, all those cells belong, and there's a unified you. Uh, No, uh, if you scrape your hand against a table, none of the cells that scrape off are gonna wander off and become a different clint, at least I hope not. So that's why why I think you can call an ant society a superorganism, because it's that unified. The whole society acts as a single identified individual. Human societies aren't quite that organized. We wouldn't want to be that organized, so there's a lot less unity within humans, and yet there are clear identities, clear in-groups and out-groups, and those in-groups have, from time going back into the into the distance, included groups that last through the generations, the groups we call societies today that have territories and and strong identities. So despite all this conflict that can be within societies, there's still a sense of
0: unity to human societies as there is with ant societies. From what I gather, ant colonies and ants in particular can grow to be much larger societies than most animals. And you had mentioned that before. And there's this idea of uh, foreignness or being not part of the tribe. And so for me, How I got into a lot of the counterterrorism research was about foreign fighters, essentially foreigners that would go and join, you know, other militia groups, militant groups to fight on their behalf. But they were not part of the tribe. So I, I was just wondering if you could describe in the animal kingdom the way foreignness comes about, how they sort of sense or detect that they're, you know, one uh, animal is not part of the tribe, and then what the effect of that is?
1: Yeah, well, good question. And actually, I, I just got a John Templeton Foundation grant to look at the life and death of societies across different animal species. But uh, I'll trace this back to my original aha moment, which was a few years ago, and it reflected uh, something about this the ant you were talking about in your last question. It's an ant called the Argentine ant, and it is very bizarre because you can this ant has taken over basically taken over southern california and if you have any ants in your kitchen in southern california it's probably the argentine ant there are 2 to 3 million of them in the average yard in southern california now and it it arrived about a century ago it's from argentina and you can take one of these ants from San Francisco from your kitchen and drive it all the way down to the Mexican border and drop it off where the human customs officials are checking people's passports. But the ants are still fine. They will merge with the ants there. They have the same identity. It's the same colony. It's the same society. But you could take that same ant and drive it a bit north and west to Escondido outside of San Diego and drop it across a borderline that you can't see, but the ants know with their lives, it'll be dead within a, a minute or two. And it turns out in Escondido and around there, four super colonies of these ants uh, converge. And there are battle lines there that go on for miles with millions of ants dying every week in the grasses, unseen by some very nice upper-middle-class folks are the (laughs) largest battles that have ever been staged in the history of this planet. And so how do they know who belongs and who doesn't? It turns out that the ants have what amounts to a national flag, which is a scent, a certain combination of molecules on their body surfaces that tells other ants if they're part of their society or not. And if you have it, you're golden. If you don't, you're killed for it. And the fact that these ants in this species can have societies that are this immense, most ant colonies are, you know, a single nest in one spot, and the next nest over there is a different colony, and they'll fight each other. But this ant is able to expand its range and have societies that can reach into the trillions, probably, just because they maintain this identity strictly throughout this whole area any ant that diverges from it is going to get killed so you have this uniquely perfect national flag system that goes on we essentially do much the same thing humans manage to identify others as belonging to their society without actually knowing them as individuals unlike chimpanzees we can have strangers be part of our societies and this is the basic reason our societies can grow this big It's not just that we're smart, but we have to be able to be comfortable around individuals we've never met before, which is impossible, as I said, for chimpanzees and impossible for most species. And in parallel with ants, even with their small brains, they're doing some of the same things we are, which makes them fascinating. And that recognition of that
0: led me to explore some of the things in the book you mentioned. So, Mark, why is it that that humans can do this? Why can we go, you know, connect with something that would be seen as foreign or not necessarily part of our tribe? I think the whole United States experience over the last couple centuries has been a degree of that. Immigrant communities from lots of different places, lots of divisions still, but still lots of unity. We're able to, you know, propel a nation forward. Why is it that humans can do this when others can't?
1: Well, we have managed to use what I call these markers of identity to make the term apply to as many things as possible. Not only symbols like flags, but all kinds of subtle cues. And uh, so I talk about humans as being walking billboards for who we are in a way that we really don't recognize, but psychologists are studying like mad now. It's fascinating to see how much detail we take in as we walk by others, how we take in details about them that makes us comfortable or uncomfortable with them in terms of being foreign or not foreign. We certainly recognize uh, things like accent and language, but also even how we walk and uh, wave a hand. There's some studies showing that an American's can detect who's American and who's not from a distance by how they walk or wave their hand, believe it or not. You don't know you have that skill, but if you're asked to guess, you almost always get it right. So these aren't things necessarily that we even learn in an obvious way. They're just there as part of this walking billboard. And our sense of belonging builds out of that. I think this is one of the major problems now that we face with immigration is that there's a disjunct between who the government says is part of our societies based on some legal rules and how our brains see others. So the government can have you learn all kinds of things that even the natives of the society probably don't remember. So an immigrant can end up knowing a lot more about being an American than an American usually does. And yet that person doesn't walk and talk like us. And we sense that. And that level of discomfort for many people is one of these
0: tensions in societies that we face all the time. So that brings me to my area, which is social media in the digital space, which I interpret as seeing people um, using implicit bias, you know, thinking someone is part of their tribe, maybe they aren't, um, either to take in information that may not be true or correct, or in order to bond with individuals that aren't physically close to them, you know, they're potentially the outsiders. They are foreign to that community, um, but still bond to it or want to take information from it. How do you see this playing out in the digital space as we spend more of our life in a a synthetic environment as opposed to being in the real world? Do you think it will play out the same or or, or is there some unique wrinkles to this?
1: Well, on the one hand, there's this thought that because Facebook friends can extend all over the world Uh, we're gonna drop society boundaries. And society boundaries are not going away. They're part of what gives us a joy as being humans. Of course, with those are the negative things that arise as well, which include dislike of foreigners or seeing foreigners as beneath us and this formation of a hierarchy that goes right down to the animals with the lowest of the low humans being seen like cockroaches as as the Nazis talked about the Jews those distinctions are not going to disappear we can try to manage them and we can try to reduce them but societies and this kind of identity are built into us that said even though there's this whole walking billboard with all these cues we can use we can try to sneak past these barriers by pretending to be something we're not which becomes Easier as societies end up having more and more diversity within them That's a great bonus in terms of the number of ideas and creativity that can come into a society But if there's less rigor in deciding who belongs and who doesn't You know, we can have a true alien in our midst that's not uh, there to do us good And a real trick is figuring out how to manage that problem when it turns out to be a problem.
0: Yeah, so I wondered, with our current political climate and having watched other animal species and sort of how they battle each other out, and there is a great deal of tribalism and identity, you know, wrapped up uh, in all of our political polls right now, are there recommendations you would make? And what might be some positive prescriptions we could think of for for Americans in this case?
1: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
1: it's, it, it's a tough one. I mean, Peter Turkin, I don't know if you know his name, a really interesting fellow to talk with. Basically, what he talks about is one of the steady patterns that goes back quite far in time is periods of pleasantness alternating with periods of stress at about a half century so you go back to the 1960s, 1910s, 1860s, and you keep going back and you see this pattern. We are stuck in the wrong end of the pattern right now. And it seems to be a pattern that uh, arises through the interactions of of uh, the uh, ways that different generations view each other and where the researchers are going and so forth. He can go into this, that sort of thing. So... One thing could be said is that we I guess we just need to be patient. We're going to get out of it. Unfortunately, my life cycle, my, my life is not long enough to get to the good part again, I don't think. So this is very annoying. You mentioned it early, though. I mean, cross-cutting ties, building ties between groups certainly puts things in the right direction. And uh, those ties are are actually pretty strong in the United States. You know, when you consider things like identity to uh, sports teams going across uh, political lines and uh, racial lines and so forth. Um, so those only seem to get us so far, but they do seem to be uh, a strong band aid for times like that. And certainly, building them further
0: is would be important. What I've talked to you. You tell me some pretty crazy stories about your adventures running around rainforest and grabbing all sorts of animals. So I'm going to take it back in a different direction here, um, which is, are there any animals that scare you?
1: I'm not scared of things like snakes and bats. Uh, the, The one creature that does terrify me is the giant centipede. Now, the giant centipede reaches its full, glorious length maximum in the Paria Peninsula of Venezuela, and I was driving along. Well, my, my uh, colleague, Venezuelan colleague, was doing the driving, but we were driving along and at night, and in the beams of the Jeep, I see one of these giant centipedes crossing the road, and I scream, stop, stop, but he still runs over it. And I leap out of the car and run back and look at the thing, and it had the Jeep run over it, but it was still, still pulling up rocks from the roadbed. So it was like 17, 18 inches long, I think. And uh, probably big enough for a mouse to run down the middle. And what's really scary about those is that they, they have huge dagger jaws in the front. But all their legs are also poisonous. And there are a lot of legs. And they also have external digestion. I don't know if you saw uh, Jeff Goldblum in the movie The Fly. But, you know, sort of like that. And that terrifies me. And in fact, I brought one of those along on one of my visits to Conan. And I'm very glad he decided I didn't need to take that out and demonstrate how I could hold one because I think I would have had a heart attack. But it was TV. So, of course, I, as an American, would have felt obliged to have the heart attack because it's necessary.
0: <laughs> and now I'm freaked out about centipedes and I didn't know I should be freaked out about them. So, but I, I guess as long as I'm not in Venezuela, I don't need to worry. Is that correct? <laughs>
1: That's true. And being freaked out of sunbeads reminds me of another way forward to get around our problems. And that is, you know, if aliens arrive, we will suddenly have another outgroup that's much more scary. And humans tend to rally together when they have a strong outgroup. So the arrival of aliens from another planet, maybe we should just concoct something and pretend it's happening to see see what transpires.
0: Yeah. So I, I like that because that mirrors my experience in the military. You know, we had platoons which were of different ethnicities and different ages and different backgrounds, all from over all over the United States, even foreign countries. You had a lot of people that were not Americans that were in our, in your units. You know, and so um, there's a guy named General uh, Stanley McChrystal. He was the the last commander in Afghanistan. He was the very famous for leading special forces in Iraq. But his, you know, sort of philosophy is shared consequence. That once you have something of shared consequence, like an alien landing or an outsider, then you suddenly resolve a lot of your differences and you work really well together and you can create a shared consequence and then a shared experience. And that shared experience leads to integration, development of a new tribe. And so it's interesting to me, you know, how those dynamics play out, but then how long do they endure and and that's where I think in the American equation, it, it always gets interesting for me, having come out of the military, is they endure since people forgot about, you know, in the amount of time since the last conflict, meaning that last yeah. period of consequence and memory fades because the next generation didn't have that sort of conflict or or consequence.
1: Right, exactly. Now, you you put it really well. You summarized my side of the argument perfectly. And In fact, <laughs> Ronald Reagan said it first, you know, he liked to talk about the fact that the Martians was exactly what we needed, even back then. That's true.
0: It's true. Well, well maybe they're... climate is that shared consequence, or, or will it go the other way? Will it lead to divisiveness, competition over resources and fighting, or will it lead to unity around coming up with a solution? I have my theory, but what do you think?
1: Well, I'm a little worried now that the people are so entrenched that as the world burns, we will blame it on, you know, the other party or whatever. It's just that we have to get out of this mode of thinking of things in terms of
0: political terms. I know you're going on a series of trips. What is the venture you're going on? I think you said for many months and years now, essentially a multi-tour um, stop uh, around the world, looking at different animals, checking things out. What are you up to?
1: The research that I talked about was just funded with the John Templeton Foundation, is basically to look at how societies function across different species. And even finding out what species have these kind of long-term stable groups that we think of in terms of human societies has been a challenge. My, My real hope is to find out how animals resolve issues about who belongs and who doesn't, and how those societies stay together over time and what eventually drives them apart because it seems to be a universal thing, not just for humans, but for other species, for societies to eventually fail, to fragment and form new societies. And it's basically in parallel to the, the bodies that we have. Our bodies eventually fail. We get the next generation of humans and human bodies, and we have the next generation of societies. So whether America can continue going and how long it does hard to say. At this point, no society has lasted much longer than a few centuries. So we're kind of in the midpoint of our development in that view. Maybe we have a couple of centuries to go. Maybe we'll beat the odds
0: and just keep going. So Mark, last question. This is the one we always close with, which is a scenario. You have to leave the United States. You can't stay here anymore and you can go anywhere in the world to finish out your time. What is the one place? If you had to just pick one place that you would go to, where would it be and why?
1: Well, if I was stuck in one place, it would have to have a lot of diversity. And so for me, that's Australia, which which has, you know, grand cities, deserts, rainforests, everything. If we're talking about a country, it would be Australia. And it has good wine.
0: So my (laughs) wife, Melissa, would be satisfied. That was biologist and writer Dr. Mark Moffat. Thank you, Dr. Bugs, for your selected wisdom. Selected wisdom is produced by Sophia James and Steve Lickteig. If you like this episode and want to hear more, make sure to follow and download wherever you stream your podcast. For more details on our guests in this episode, visit our website, SelectedWisdom.com. The Selected Wisdom Substack, or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. Thanks for listening.